Welcome to The Bean Pot. I'm your host, Adam Drinkwater. I hope you've had a chance to listen to the other four episodes. I'm having the best time making this podcast and reflecting on things that are important to me. I want to keep improving, though, and you can help me do that by visiting patreon.com slash adamdrinkwater and taking a few minutes to give me your feedback. There are just a few quick polls there that are open to everyone, and it will only take a moment to answer. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show by joining one of my Patreon tiers. Also, please subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And follow me on Twitter and Instagram at ADH2O. My guest today is my good friend, Tori Lee Averett, who is the chair for the Department of Theater and Dance at Troy University and coordinator of the Theater Education Program. She is a dreamer in the best meaning of the word. She is the kind of friend that I can talk to for hours and totally lose track of time. She inspires me to think deeply about myself and my place in the world. She inspires me to be creative and to express myself. I think she's brilliant, vibrant, and fun in so many ways. I hope you enjoy this special extended episode with Tori, where we dig deep into what inspires us both about the arts. The first hour we spend talking about her humble beginnings in a small country community in Alabama. We discuss how she fell in love with music as a child and discovered a love for teaching others later in college. And we talk about how her travels took her to new places and introduced her to new people and even connected her deeper to her own roots. The second hour, we get deeper into what the arts mean to both of us as individuals and to our communities. We discuss how having the arts in our lives helps us to find meaning and purpose, and how art enriches our neighbors and gives us an opportunity to pay it forward to the next generation. I had so much fun talking with Tori and laughing, so much so that I completely lost track of time. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. So without further ado, Tori Lee Avery. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me here. You, um, you inspire me. Mm, Adam. And I mean that, honestly and truly. And <laughs> we've just sat here and talked for an hour or so before we ever turn the recorder on. Mm. And I just get lost in our conversations. I want to, I want to talk about what inspires you and what got you to where you are today? You grew up in a small community, mm-hmm. uh, very rural. Um, if I'm not mistaken, a place called Hamilton Crossroads. Is that right? Yes. Tell me, tell me about your oldest memory in Hamilton Crossroads. Tell me about something you remember from your childhood. Okay, I'm going to say the first thing that I just thought of. Perfect. I don't know if it's the earliest, it's, but it's indelible. And I think it is a thing that happened more than once, so it's sort of layered. Um, so where we lived with my grandparents, um, was a, it was about eight acres, 
and it was a long rectangle that the house or the trailer <laughs> was at the top of the hill. So you went up the driveway, kind of up the hill, there was the house, and then behind the house, you went down a hill again, and it was lined with pine trees, like soldiers sort of standing guard, and there was a pine forest behind us. And in the front yard, it was mostly like a field that was open, and there was a spot where um, the grass grew greener, and I learned much later that that's where the septic tank was. (laughs) (laughs) It was a perfect rectangle that featured these little sort of um, bluet, sort of violet kind of flowers. I'm still laughing. I can't stop. (laughs) But it was this enchanted spot. I didn't know it was the septic tank. And so, and the grass was so soft all the time. <laughs> this is real life, okay? You're laughing at my childhood memories in Hamilton Crossroads. But I loved to go lay out there right in the center of that perfect rectangle <laughs> of grass and look up at the clouds. And, and it was just me and, and the grass and the sky. And when the wind was blowing, it was even better. But just feeling the sun and feeling like I'm the only person in the world and what a magical place this is. And it just felt enchanted. Like Mm. I've been chosen to be alive right now and just feeling, I don't know, I can remember, I can remember how warm the sun was and everything about just nature around me. I remember that really, really well. And I think I did that often Maybe just, I don't know, maybe I needed to wander out there and just be away for a minute. I don't know why I did that, but that's the first thing that I thought of. It was very quiet and, um, uh, as you said, rural, so there wasn't a lot of extra noise. So it was a great place to hear birds and, and, and see bugs crawling around. It was just kind of far from idyllic, but, but calm and peaceful and, yeah. Do you feel like, do you feel like that was a, different experience from the rest of your family um, being a dreamer like that or was that common in your family I think it was common because I think that for whatever reason there was some sort of um, I don't know I feel really lucky now but at the time I thought everybody had this experience that most of my family were kind of dreamy and like I don't want to say like believing in magic but there was something really enchanted about life and existence and um it felt very pure and a little innocent and a little naive even the adults um very Hmm. playful very but not cynical humorous like I don't know like joyously playful um and again not idyllic but just I don't know there was sort of this belief that there were things that were special. There were moments that were special. There were objects that were special. Things held meaning. People held meaning. Um, uh, things aligned for a reason. And I don't mean like in a, you know, like a hippy-dippy, like feelings kind of way. Just There was just a specialness about things and a meaning about things. Um, and then the other children in the family, yeah, we, we were all sort of that way. I was the oldest of the four of us, and so I often felt like a little more special. Not better than, but like I have a responsibility to, you know, to have a have a thing, have a a presence or an idea or something like that, (laughs) you know. Like so, laying out there, I felt like maybe I was channeling something that was going to be really important in my role as 
a person in this family or something. So it felt very special and only for me, which I think I share with my siblings at least. They had those kinds of experiences growing up too. Did you feel like it was your role to be the big sister? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and it, I think it, it's not uncommon, you know, for older siblings to mm. feel that way. But I think I felt sort of hyper-responsible um, and it, not like burdened, but like, um, I need to be, I need to be aware of what's going on all the time. I need to protect. That's not uncommon. Um, I need to be a good example. Uh, I need to look after them cause they're smaller and they don't understand. I need to help because they may not be strong enough, you know, things like that. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that, but yeah, feeling like it was what I was supposed to do. Yeah. Like. Um, but again, not a burden. It felt, it felt like um, I don't know. It felt like being tapped for a very special job. Mm. Did you dream about being something different? Did you dream about finding another role? Nope. Hmm. I mean, I don't think I've ever thought about that. But I don't think that I did. What did you dream about? I dreamed about stories. Hmm. I dreamed about being a character in the stories. Um, I read a lot. And I enjoyed movies and and theater. And and, um, I loved watching things happen. I loved watching stories unfold around characters. Whether it was literally watching or watching in my mind's eyes. I was reading a book, you know. But I liked thinking about myself especially in nature, you know, like um, the girl who could talk to birds, you know, I think a lot of us think that when we're Mm. kids, or like um, the girl who became a mermaid, or uh, the girl who could breathe underwater but didn't tell anybody, you know, that kind of thing. So things like that, just I I dreamed about being a part of, um, um, I don't know, I just dreamed about being a character in a larger story. Did you make your siblings be characters in your stories? Yes. Yes. Did they love that? Did you call them? No, but I wish I had. Um, yes. In hindsight, I will probably do that in the future. Okay, great. Well, yes. Um, my sister, Trista, is uh, just a little less than two years younger than me. The perfect age for bossing around. Absolutely. It's great. That's she, why you have younger siblings. That's exactly right. And I'm always just a little bit smarter. Always. <laughs> A lot bossier, but I made her be the thing that I didn't want to be in the story, but that I needed to have. Mm. So, and she's aware of this and (laughs) we've worked it out. It's fine now, but I loved playing the musical carousel. Loved it. I don't even remember what we played because that has, that, that story can get kind of dark, but it's, um, it's romantic musical theater, right? So I always wanted to be Julie, the girl in the story. And I made her be Billy. I always made her be Billy. So she's, like a foot shorter than I am. And I'm like, okay, pick me up. You have to carry me because that's what the boy does to the girl. Pick me up, Trista, pick me up. And she's like, I can't, you're bigger than (laughs) I am. And I'm like, I don't care. This is how it has to be played. Now say, I love you, Julie. And she'd say, I love you, Julie. And you know, so I just, I did that all the time. Bless her heart. And then our brother is like almost five years younger than I am. And he was having none of it. I mean, we tried to boss him around because then we could gang up on him. Um, 
and it, he was having none of it. But he, we would dress him up sometimes. So yeah, yeah. That's what. That's why you have little brothers. Yes. Right. Yes. When <laughs> that had to stop at some point, though. No, it has not stopped. No, you still no. dress him up. Yes. Christmas and holiday, other Pretty holidays. Much. We make merciless fun of him when we're all together. <laughs> And we're fine with it. We've worked through it as a family. It's a working relationship. Yes. And there was um, my third sibling, the third of the fourth of us, um, Jocelyn. um, Gosh, I don't know what is politically correct to call her anymore because it's changed so many times over our lifetime. But um, she's never been able to walk or talk. Hmm. She's always been confined to a wheelchair. Um, she doesn't eat, she doesn't, I mean, she doesn't, um, she is fed by tube, you know, there are a lot of things there, but, um, but so she's been called several things back in the, back in the day when I was a little kid, it was, uh, we would say, this is my sister. She's profoundly mentally retarded. That was okay. We don't say that anymore. And then it was multiply handicapped. And then that became not okay to say. And then it was, she has many exceptionalities and special needs. So like, I don't know what to say about her other than she's incredibly special and she does have a lot of needs that most other siblings don't have. Her not being able to talk in our family meant that she was the greatest audience member ever and we forced her to watch us do things. (laughs) And she, (laughs) even now, is um, a pretty good filter for like... I'm tired of your crap. Like, I can't watch I this I can't take this anymore. anymore. Or, I love this, I'm going to laugh and um, clap. And, you know, when she was younger, she did. She clapped a lot um, and loved it and lo- loved watching our antics. So, she was not excluded from that fun, but she we just didn't boss her around. We just like to entertain her. <laughs> was, was singing a part of your family? Yes. Yes. Um, my mother has a beautiful voice, beautiful, like angelic. It sounds like a, a, a young, pure kind of angelic voice. It's beautiful. And she was a trained singer um, and a very good musician. And a lot of people in our family sang. Our grandfather sang like Bing Crosby, you know, or he fancied himself Bing Crosby, or maybe that's just my memory. <laughs> <laughs> but but we were a very musical family just by uh, just singing was just in our family. And so then our siblings, uh, my siblings and I sang, and we um, we we fancied ourselves the Von Trapps sometimes. So we would sing in harmony. And, um, yeah, we did that a lot. We didn't really perform because that wasn't really what, was, what it was about, but we loved singing together in harmony. And we grew up um, in, I don't know if, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but in the Church of Christ denomination, mm-hmm. there are no instruments um, in worship service, and it's uh, all a cappella. All a cappella, and so there's this tradition of four-part harmony, of shape note and solfege singing. Um, singing is a very important part of that, and so that's the that's the church we grew up going to. And my mom told us much later that was one of the things that she loved about that church is she really wanted us to get music education anywhere we could and so we all learned how to sing with other people from the time we were able to speak and um, to sing in tune and to stay in tune and things like that Um, so that was sort of generational like my great grandparents and great great grandparents also came from that tradition not not necessarily extreme religiosity but definitely the communal singing part of things was really 
just kind of part of the fabric. It's another one of those things, you know, you get older and go, well, didn't everybody do this? Mm -hmm. And people are like, actually, no, like (laughs) no one did that. (laughs) You're the only person I've ever met who did that. So I feel really lucky, but, um, yeah, it was, it was a big part of our lives. What about musical instruments? Yes. Did you take lessons? Yes. Um, I tried to take piano from my mom. My mom taught, um, out of our home, like always she taught one time, I think at like Ayrton elementary school or something like that. She would just go a few days a week. So she taught other children piano and I tried to take from her when I was little. And as is the case with a lot of people, like you don't want your parent to also be your teacher. So that didn't really work. But then I had this wonderful piano teacher named Dottie Jo Brown Davis Um, And she was a Troy University student in theater and music. I think she was, that was not her major, but that was her passion. And she just taught lessons on the side to, you know, like make rent or whatever. And she was fabulous. Hmm. And she let me play by ear and made me read music. And she taught me by rote. So she sort of took all the things that I brought already and made the most out of them Hmm. and just I'd never been taught like that before so yes I took piano with her and then when she graduated I didn't have a teacher then I started again with um, Miss Gwen Threadgill and took from her for years like all the way through upper elementary all the way through um, the beginning of college I took from her and I have to say um, when you said that I guess on the heels of the conversation about singing in church it made me remember a little like wrinkle like a little thing that I didn't necessarily want to remember because there was not, there was like an aversion to musical instruments in, Mm. in that denomination. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like bad, you know, they're bad, but it was just like, it wasn't, it wasn't spoken. Yes. And I was really confused. Um, and it was just one of those things that we just didn't talk about. Like we had a piano at home and we played piano and my mom played piano and it was a thing. And we listened to music that had instruments in it, but it wasn't at church, which was this huge part of our musical lives mm-hmm. and our community life. Um, and so I got to be in like, maybe I was 13 or 14. No, you know what? I was probably 15 or 16 and I'd really been into piano and it had really become like a part of my life and it was really um important to who I was becoming and what moved me and inspired me and we had this um like a it was sort of like a youth minister somebody that who was like a college-aged person who who was teaching us um a Sunday school class and the format of the class was find you know find a question from your life bring it to class and we took turns so like when it was my turn um, and, and the goal was to bring the question and we're going to look through the Bible and we're going to talk to one another about, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so my question was about music and I will never forget. Um, I remember exactly where I was sitting when we, we it started as kind of a conversation and then it sort of turned into a bit of a debate. And I said, Um, we were talking about why we can't have musical instruments in church and why is is it a bad thing to play musical instruments and I said so wait if I am at church and I leave and I'm feeling so moved and inspired and uplifted and I 
go to my house and I then sit down and I play a hymn on the piano, am I in the wrong because the worship has lingered in me and I want to go and experience it this way? And he said, yes. Mm. And I thought, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't, that is where I experience this music that we make together and the music that I make alone with the piano at that time that's wrong. I can't connect to my own spirituality or, or God or whatever you want to call it. I I can't connect through that. And I know he was just a guy. He was just one person in one Sunday school class. And I, I don't mean to say that that's like what everybody believes. And that's what that, that part of the faith is about. But, but he sure said that. And I was devastated and I didn't know what to do because I felt, I felt less like I was wrong and more like, well, now I don't know what I don't know who to talk to about this. I don't know where to put this. I can't drop it. And I don't I don't know what to do. So that was I, I just remember that. I can't believe that when you So how did you move forward? Hmm. You didn't stop playing music. No. You didn't stop singing. No. You didn't stop f- going to your happy places. No. Um or worshiping from your heart. I think it was important like I'm thinking about it now, I think it made me think about the gray areas of Mm -hmm. what works and what doesn't work for different people. And I remember thinking, he doesn't know what it feels like to get lost in music in this way. He doesn't know, and he Mm -hmm. can't know, and I don't think he would say that. I remember thinking that, and it made me look at other people and the things that they did that I thought were strange or weird, or I would go, you shouldn't do that. That's against the rules, and go, ooh, maybe that means something to them, and so I think I definitely kept doing what I was doing and deepening my understanding of things like that, and what I think it did surprisingly was made me open the door a little wider for what other people's experiences were. So, yeah, but I didn't, I I felt hurt and upset, but I didn't feel angry Mm. or condemned or anything like that. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense to me. I, I look at art that way. Um, I don't remember when it was. I started drawing sketching as a very young person. I remember even in middle school drawing little cartoon characters and passing the pages around with my classmates and they would draw pictures and I would draw pictures. And and I remember, I, I want to say it was in high school and I was drawing um, a nude figure. Um, and there was, for me, there was nothing inappropriate about it. Mm-hmm. I loved anatomy. Uh, I even remember I had considered getting into medicine, um, because, um, somebody that my mom worked with had given me a book about, um, they were they had been an EMT mm-hmm. and they'd given me this book of like all these injuries. It was the most horrific and oh terrifying and graphic thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> and I was totally fascinated by it. Um, what was fascinating? Just the the structure of the human body 
mm. is just absolutely is fascinating to me. It's like a it's like a puzzle. Mm. It's like a mm, it's like a building that needs to be built, and and I liked I liked constructing that building. I liked looking at its elements. I liked looking at the the rectangles and the cylinders and the spheres and putting them all together and then making a shape and mm-hmm. and seeing that I had I had put a shape on paper that I had seen with my eyes and now I had done it with my hands. Mm-hmm. And and to me the most fascinating thing in the world is the human body. And and I drew this picture and there was nothing sexual about it at all. And my teacher saw it and freaked out. Mm. And I remember feeling really um, misunderstood. And I remember feeling really upset that I couldn't do that. Mm. That I couldn't, that I couldn't love this thing that I loved. Mm -hmm. And that somehow I was doing something wrong when I wasn't. And so that makes sense to me. I, I can understand that. Um, I can understand that people's people's own convictions, especially when it comes to the arts and it, when it comes to music um, and dancing. Mm-hmm. There are some people who think that dancing is wrong, right? Uh, especially in worship, right? Um, and but- that's their conviction, and those convictions sometimes lead into rules mm-hmm. and and sometimes those rules aren't right and they they stigmatize or limit kids from finding the thing that's special to them or making them hide the thing that's special to them mm-hmm. And I think what's really great is that you didn't hide it. You didn't stuff it away and stop just because of one person. You kept going. Mm -hmm. You knew that it was a part of you. It made you happy. And you pursued it. Did you know you wanted to pursue it in college? No. Was college an option for you? It was sort of like I knew I wanted to do it. An option, and I didn't know this at the time, I feel like I was just clumsily walking forward and I had great parents, family support, teacher, and all that stuff, but um, I didn't understand how much college cost. I just thought you went. Like, you're smart, you like learning, you keep going to school. And it's like, that costs thousands and thousands of dollars, which... When I learned how much it cost, it was sort of like, oh, this might not happen. Like, there was just this little bit of, like, how is this going to happen? Okay, don't think about that. Just keep walking forward. Just keep walking forward. Like, don't add it up, which is a little bit of, like, head in the sand. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to pretend like that big scary thing is not coming at me. It's a little bit of that, which I don't know if that's always good, but that it was just sort of like, if I think about this too hard, I'm going to not do it because it's, it's big. But the idea of learning, the idea of going to college, and the idea of being able to focus or, or be around people who are excited about learning and, and doing their thing, whatever it was, was really cool to me. And there was a little bit of an expectation, like, you're a smart kid, you got to go to college. This is what you do. Like, if you want to um, have a good job, if you want to be something, whatever, like, you 
all of that rhetoric. It was like, you need to go. It was just assumed. Was that coming from your family or other people? or? Well, mostly from mostly from teachers. Like, you should do this. You're doing well in school. You should keep going. But family, too. Um, not everybody in my family went to college, but it was respected. Like, education was always respected. And my grandfather was enough of, like, a showman to be like, you're going to Harvard. And I was like, okay, I'll go to Harvard. Like, <laughs> I don't know the difference between Harvard and, you know, whatever, college down the road or whatever but that sounds good why is that good and he's like oh you go to harvard and he would put he would spin this tale around like the future and all this stuff and i'm like i can do that it doesn't matter if i can or not like i feel like i can it's that special thing you know the septic tank grass dreamer person is like i'm going to harvard laying down here in the grass over the septic tank in Alabama. (laughs) It's fine. Those things exist in the same world. So, yes, it was not necessarily encouraged. It was just sort of collectively dreamed about and expected. Hmm. Okay, but then going to college, like, well... That's real life. Right, right. And what are you going to do? And you asked if I knew that I wanted to study it in college. I didn't know that you could. Hello. Hmm. Like, I'm I'm not making this up. It just sounds like a story. I'm, I'm saying it was like one one foot in front of the other, one step at a time, like, oh, 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 everything was like discovery. And um, I knew going in to school that I was like, I want to help kids. I just want to help kids. And I I think I want to help them like do better and be, I, I didn't have words for it. I didn't know what that job was called. It was just like, I'm going to do something so sweet. Counselors and college admissions people are like, well, we have to find a major. <laughs> um, so how does this sound? And they, they would talk about child psychology, which mm. I was interested in. My mom was a teacher and loved the psychology part of teaching. So I was like, oh, that sounds great. And counseling, oh, that's kind of neat too. And therapy, that's kind of cool too. But like, can we do stuff? Like, can they get up and can we like do fun things? And they're like, oh, that's like, like, physical like physical education I was like no 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 not like that but like physical sounds good so I wound up this is crazy can um, I just make up my own major exactly so I said I'm going to be I'm only going to major in physical therapy and minor in music because I enjoy music for myself but I'm going to find a way to mash those things together and I'm going to be this physical musical child psychologist helper person Will this fit on an eight and a half by 11 (laughs) diploma? Right. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And so I started taking the pre-med physical therapy kinds of classes in my freshman year. And it was not going well. I did not enjoy it. And somebody, and I was taking like all music classes and doing all the shows and participating in all the arts things. And somebody at the college was like, what are you doing? Like, look at your schedule. why are you not a music education major? And I was like, you can do that? You can major in music? Like, study it all the time? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, you know, I said earlier, it was like, country come to town. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I can do that? And and so I changed my major. And there wasn't dance ed or theater ed or performing arts education. I just knew, I was like, I want to do that thing that I love to do, and I want to show younger people they might be able to do it and I found so much joy in this like let me help you find your way to it and you don't have to be great at it but I would love for you to experience it and it might help I mean I don't know if it'll help but it might and that'd be cool um so yeah that's kind of how I tripped into music education but even then I didn't 
I didn't know that that was a thing, music education. You also had to, you had to pay for school mm-hmm. and that wasn't easy. You, um, you and I were talking and I think one of the things that helped you in this course was your time with Junior Miss, Yeah. right? Yeah. Now it's called something different now. What's it called? Distinguished Young Woman or yeah, Distinguished Young Woman. Why did that help you? Well, for one thing, it was like one of those things that somebody at some point said, you should, you should go be in that because it's a scholarship thing. And, you know, a lot of quote unquote pageants say they're scholarship programs. And they were like, this one has a talent competition and there's scholarship involved. And it's about helping young women to sort of pursue their goals. And that all sounded good. I'm not a great pageant person like I never have been it's fun but it's just I just I'm not good at that I don't do well but this had this had scholarship attached to it that was that was going to assist whoever won or whatever you know through school and so I did it and it was really fun and so I won this thing it was really and I think I was only the second person from Brundage at that time it had been like 30 years or something. I was only the second person from my school, from my high school, Pike County, in Brundage to have ever won that. And Brundage is like 2,000 people yeah. in the city. Yes. And with that came some scholarship help. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll tell you why that was important, though. Like, around here, it was like a really big deal. In a larger world, it's not that big of a deal. But why it was a big deal for me is because it was sort of like... I don't know. It to say it gave me confidence. I mean, of course it gave me confidence, but it it also made me feel like all this that I've been doing pays off. Um there are people that want to see me do more. There are people that want to help me or there are people that believe that spending all this time, you know, working on piano or academics or whatever that that there are people that want me to um continue to do that. And that's important, and and that part of me is really important, and I don't know. And then and then being from where I was from, and being honored in that way felt not. It wasn't like special. I felt like I was representing something mm. that was bigger than me, and that. It worked out like I don't want to say it was like an underdog story, but it kind of was. It kind of was that way. And realizing that just because I was from a certain background or a certain place or there were assumptions about me by people who'd never met me and really gotten to know me and and early past judgment, you know, all that kind of stuff that didn't matter that that hard work and following opportunity, and trying to be a good person, and um, being brave, those things like paid off for me, and so that more than it helped me monetarily, or made me seem like, you know, you're on the front page of the messenger, and your grandmother is so happy, you know, more than that specialness and a title, it was like, I don't know. Empowering? Yes, thank you, thank you, that's the word. In a way that I don't think that I was ready for. And I got a lot of attention. And a lot of people who otherwise would not have talked to me suddenly began to talk to me. Which 
was difficult. <laughs> um, I had instant respect from a couple Good of street people. cred. Yes. With people that weren't really my people. And it was sort of strange, but, but in a good way, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I don't mean to make it sound like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm even saying, but the other, that is not how I paid for school. I had an academic scholarship. I had some scholarship to Auburn at the very last minute, changed my mind and decided to go to Troy. Um, because I had a good academic scholarship. I think even at the time it was called the Chancellor's Award or the Chancellor's Scholarship. I had the Junior Miss funding. I had all of those little local scholarships that you try to get, but like that's how that's how it had to go. There was not going to be other help. Um, financial aid, thank goodness for federal financial aid for young people who are trying to make it through school. That's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have made it. <clears throat> without things like Pell Grants and all of those scholarships, my little savings bond from the fifth grade Pike County Spelling Bee. Um, I did win second place in the state of Alabama Spelling Bee. For real? I did. I misspelled the word penalize. Isn't that funny? No, because I, I would have misspelled that in probably every word you spelled correctly. <laughs> so I was very proud of that. But like that's a savings bond that matured when I was in college, mm. and I could pay rent with that. Spelling Bee Savings Bond, and it got really hairy toward the end when the scholarships started to run out, and the savings bonds had been spent, and there are three siblings behind me, and my family was always very supportive and helped me, but like there was only so much they could do, so it was just understood without talking about it. You're going to need to figure this out, and that hyper-responsibility that I talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. it was already built in, so it's like before I could drive, I was working. Um... I always worked. When I graduated college, I had five different jobs that I was doing. I'm not exaggerating. I was earning money every free moment I had because I had to. So, again, it sounds sort of like I'm sensationalizing poverty or whatever, but um, every opportunity was like I had to take it. I had to take it. There was not another option. But the but the good side of that is like I gained so much. Hmm. I gained so many um like connections with people um when somebody said they were working hard I was like I know what you mean like and that was a point of connection um I met so many people I learned so I had to practice so many different skills because I was code switching all the time from job to job and from person to person so I would work with people who had money and education and I would work with people who had no money and very little education um and it was just like I don't know. It was really hard. I I think that is one of the things that makes you great at what you do, though, is that you can empathize with so many people that you come in contact with. Hmm. And I think about art specifically because that's important to me. Um, And I think about, you know, I've... I had a similar upbringing. Um, I, I lived next to a dairy farm. Um, it was my house and five others. <laughs> and the closest town was several miles away. And art was not important to people. Um, art was important to one of my mom's friends. Mm. And she saw that I loved art. 
And I remember she told my mom one year that <clears throat> that she needed she needed to um, encourage that. She needed to make sure that I did art. And fortunately, as I grew up and I got older, in high school, when well, our middle school and our high school, um, which was about a 15-minute drive by car, I think, to get to the closest high school, um, the middle school and high school had good art programs, which I'm really thankful for. Mm. But my wife and I, the other day, were talking about a school that's not too far from here. Actually, you mentioned it, um, Ayrton. And Ayrton doesn't have an art program. And it makes me sad for those for those kids that they're missing out on that, especially for the ones that want to have art. But I realized that, um, that resources are limited, right? Like we can't do everything. But the arts and music and theater uh, are, are a part of enrichment that if I hadn't had, I'm not sure what I would have done in life. It was, other than music, it was the one thing that I always came back to mm. and that brought me happiness and that I got excited about mm. and that I couldn't wait to do. Um, and it motivated me and inspired me. And I think about what your life might have been like had you not had a musical family right. or a musical church. Um, right, because it was not it at wasn't, school. It we wasn't at school. at school. You didn't have it. It wasn't a part of your community. It was just part of your family. And that is a, that's a, I don't want to call it a privilege, um, but I want to say that that is, that's a good thing that you had. Mm-hmm. Um, and an opportunity that other people maybe didn't have. And it's made you who you are. I would agree. I think I had a really vigilant parent who was the product of people who had seen at least part of the world, you know, through the military and my grandmother moving from Missouri. I mean, you know, there, our existence was not confined to being in one place for all time. So so the the imagination that we sort of started the conversation with, talking mm-hmm. about being a dreamer and everything, that produced seekers of opportunity. And so my mother, so we're not going to have consistent art education at school, like art class. We're not going to have music in school unless there's a grant, and one year we have it, and the next five years we don't. And the band, maybe, and there's definitely not dance at school. So, so my mother was super vigilant about seeking opportunities for us. The community theater that would happen in Troy as part of the Troy Arts Council or the university at the time, you know, she would just sign us up for all of that. The where was the where was the nearest legitimate dance studio? Like, who's the, what's the best instruction you can get privately in piano or whatever? And the rest of it was just fostering it at home and encouraging it. And I think about what if I had not had that mom? Um, she, I think, in some of my grandfather's moving around the country in the military, 
um, and with different work, she had been to a couple of schools and as a child had experienced like a school that had strong music education and even had dance classes in schools. And so she knew, even as a child, she knew that that was a thing somewhere. And so when she moved to this area and, and it was not a normal expectation in the culture of this part, you know, of the country or this part of the state, it was like, well, it's important. She knew that it existed, and so she she found a way to make it happen. And what if that had not been my mom? Mm-hmm. What if my mom had not lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, and gone to a really cool elementary school, uh, you know, and sung in that Christmas concert in that venue that changed her life when she was 10 or something? Like, um, and I think about how many people did not have that mom mm-hmm. who did not live anywhere other than Southeast Alabama, who did not have a scope of imagination outside of the world that they knew. And now I think it's a little different because we have the internet and we have television. So people are aware that things are out there. So thank, thank goodness for that. But the idea of a vigilant parent who's seeking opportunities for their child is still, it doesn't matter how much information is out there. If you, you're, you're exactly right, Adam, if you don't have a person who's saying, you know, you should pursue that or, Hey, your kid, do you know that your kid has this interest or this skill? You ought to try to find something for him to do. He's good at drawing. Do you mm-hmm. know that he's good at drawing? Those uh, uh, adults who are looking out for children are really important. Yeah. Really important. So I'm glad that you had somebody in your life that was that way. If it hadn't been for that first art kit that I think my mom's friend gave me, hmm. I don't know when art would have touched me. Wow. I mean, really, like as I try to imagine where I would have been connected to art, I, I don't know. It may it may have been too late by the time I was exposed to it. So, it, so you followed art, though. Like, I, I don't know your whole story, but you went to college to study art. I did. It's been and part of your life forever, hasn't it? It has been. And, and it's something that um, it gave me something to aim for, right? Like, mm-hmm. I I had other opportunities um, around my senior year of high school that um, were available to me mm-hmm. for, for college that I was considering around athletics. And um, at the last minute, well, not last minute, but in my last semester, semester at high school, uh, I decided I did not want to be a college athlete. That is not the life I wanted. And when I made that decision, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know where I wanted to go because those schools that I was thinking about going to, they, they dropped off the radar. And I took about a year off after high school and just worked and just thought about what I wanted to be and where I wanted to go. And I just kept coming back to art. Art was the thing that I kept coming back to because it was so much a part of who I was. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I went to a a small art school um, and got a multimedia degree, which basically meant everything. I did everything (laughs) from hand illustrations to 3D animation and um, was exposed to a lot of really interesting things. but it was a tool that I was able to then take into the professional world when I was ready that led 
that open new doors to new opportunities mm-hmm. and to new jobs and and to and to imagine my life without those opportunities all because I was never exposed to art uh, is really discouraging. Yeah. And, and we, like you said, we live in an area that is, is not, doesn't have a lot of resources and didn't have a lot of resources when you were growing up. Um, but, but it's changed. Uh, I think is changing. Um, you did say the internet exposes us to a lot of things, but if we don't have access to it, if we don't have pens and paper, if we don't have crayons, if we don't have paints, if we don't have pianos and violins and trombones, um, you can watch it on the internet all you want, and it's it hasn't changed anything in your life. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm thankful that you had those resources because those resources, when they led you to college, they opened up new doors for you. Mm-hmm. And, and you... You learn new things that you wouldn't have learned, like you can get a degree in music. Right. <laughs> but you didn't stop there, right? Like, new doors opened for you. Mm-hmm. Where did you go when, where did you go as those doors opened? What happened next in your life? Um, while I was in school, I tried to do a lot of different things. Um, I could never hyper-focus in one thing and so people would say um you're a good singer you're a good piano player you're a good whatever you know people say you should focus and I kept trying to stop doing everything else and just focus on one thing and I just couldn't do it couldn't do it and I thought all of this informs all of it and if I if I stop playing the piano because I'm not going to be a concert pianist that wasn't my goal if I stop playing the piano like and that falls off my life, I, it won't inform all these other things. So so I I tried to do a lot of different things, and, and not just with the arts. I mean, like, I tried to learn different things. I tried to meet a lot of people, and being involved with theater was a thing that I did, not as a major or even as a course of study until later, and I picked up some classes um, that, that really sort of opened up a lot of the valves. Um, I had been used to the discipline study of music and music education, and I was gaining a lot of things there. And I'd always been involved in theater. And so to get to take classes, and it was really thrilling, and, and um, to get to refine some of that. But, but it was so all-inclusive and expansive because theater was this sort of um, distilled imitation of life. Mm. And we're having conversations about why people behave the way they do and what is conflict and all that. It was just really fascinating to me. And so the umbrella of theater was still kind of keeping me um, uh, involved in a lot of different things. So anyway, so that, that plays in. But during undergraduate, um, in the summers, we could do this thing. Uh, you can audition um, through certain entities and go and work in the summers in professional theaters or sometimes it's like a theme park or whatever you know stuff like that and so I auditioned as a performer and wound up getting um offered a job and they said you can be a performer and you can come and sing these roles and you can be on the stage or whatever and we'll we'll pay you like a hundred dollars a week 
you know, for whatever, for nine weeks or something, and we'll give you housing. But I see on your resume that you're also a musician and you've taught and you've got some of that experience. So if you think you might could be a music director, we'll pay you $450 a week and you'll have a house, like you'll have housing separate from the actors. So I had, I went to my mentors and said, what should I do? I want to perform. That's so fun and everything. But like, this seems stupid to say, I don't want to be in charge of this thing and i am be one of two music directors and it pays so much better, but like, I don't know what to do. It seems like I'm not ready for that. And so they encouraged me to take the directing, the music directing thing. And so I was a music director who was the exact same age as the performers, which was weird because usually it was like older people, but I had such a great experience. And that was, um, that was, I guess it was like my next to the last summer, and that was in New Hampshire at the in the Lakes region. So we did like an intensive summer of producing all of these shows, and I played the scores, and I mean taught all this music, and it was like, oh my gosh! And it's in New Hampshire, for goodness sake. It, that's that's a long way from Alabama. It's a little <laughs> different. It's a little different. And I was somewhat of a novelty in the company, um, but I got to expose New Hampshire folks to Alabama and I felt like an ambassador for my state Mm. and after the novelty wore off it was like they had a different opinion of me they had all these ideas about who I was oh great you know the southerner Alabama let's bring out all the jokes and then our skill and talent started speaking to one another and it was connection building so another light bulb like wow all these really talented people from all across the country we're tearing apart judgment and preconceived notions of one another. And, and the next time they meet someone from Alabama, they're going to think twice before they say, oh, you know, are you, are you married to your cousin? And do you ride a horse and cart to school? I mean, you know, whatever they think, that we're all backwards or deprived or something, and they're going to think twice. So I felt like that was an important thing for me to feel. So, so I left with friends from all over the country, and I thought – I am nobody special. If I can do this, a lot of people can do this. If they're just not afraid to go outside of what's known and comfortable, like they're not afraid to live in New Hampshire for three months with strangers, like what what would that change? And I did the same thing because I had, you know, I grew up, you know, talking about, you know, all Northerners are Yankees and they all talk fast and they all, there's something to be angry at and be suspicious of, you know, like came pretty came by that pretty naturally like thinking about that but these were nice people who were talented and smart and worried about the same things I worried about and their families were so different and that was so fascinating so that was a really important summer um and it was really important for my resume as small as it sounds all of these little opportunities that came along were making my resume look more diverse and so then I took another job um right at the end of college um, in, in the Appalachian Mountains, working with Southern Appalachian stages on dramas that were to preserve Appalachian heritage, which is my heritage, but I'd never really spent a lot of time thinking about it. And then when I was there, I'm meeting people, and I'm like, we're from the same cloth, and I want you to teach me about what this place is. And so I got this wonderful, I did this, I wound up doing it for three different summers at different lengths, but to live in the Appalachian Mountains, like in the Appalachian Mountains of North Georgia and Southern North Carolina and to learn about 
music and the artisan crafts and cooking and hunting and hiking the AT, Appalachian Trail, and meeting these um, old wise people who came of age in the Depression and, and and they saw electricity come to their town. I mean, like, I felt so privileged and kind of quieted. And then just to be in the vastness of what the Appalachian Mountains look and feel like and to feel that lying on my back in the grass looking up again like, I'm so lucky that I get to be here and I'm standing on a mountain and it's huge and I'm so small and I still feel so special to be alive and breathe in this air, like just that spectacular humility. I don't know how to explain it, to feel big and small at the same time. But then the the education that I'm getting, I'm performing on stage with people who are 80 years old and grew up here, and I'm learning shape notes, and I'm learning to play the dulcimer on stage, and I'm talking to people um, in the audience who who want to connect about the story that we just told on stage, and I'm teaching people the songs and the harmonies. And one year I got to choreograph, and one year I was also doing the laundry, like I was the wardrobe person to pick up a little extra money. So, um, just doing this varied stuff, and again, not able to put any of it down. It all seemed so rich; I couldn't set any of it down. Um, I learned to play the stand-up bass from a guy who wore overalls and nothing else, and I mean nothing else. <laughs> He also gave me my first sip of moonshine. It was plum brandy, and it was the most beautiful thing in an in an absolute mason jar. Like, here, take a sip of this. Like, one of those things, and it's like, hello, here I am from Brundage, Alabama. What is that? It sure looks pretty, you know. So I got quite an education in the mountains. <laughs> real life, real life stories. So, you know, I, and I could go on about, like, all the little like trip wires that that flipped to lead to other opportunities connected to other people and other performers and other directors and writers and thinkers and just creative people. Um, I taught high school after that. Like I, my degree in music education certified me to teach um, preschool through 12th grade. And I got a gig, you know, in the middle of Georgia where I knew no one, no one, and went to teach high school and you know that that was sort of, that was a different experience, but it was it was the first time that I ever knew that I was going to have enough money. Um, since I had become an adult, you know, I think my family was really good about pretending like we were all okay, not pretending, but making sure that the kids were never worried. But as far as myself, like having to piece it together and month to month kind of living, this was the first time that I signed a contract, and I was going to make the same amount of money for like a whole year and. Wow, and and I had to act like an adult and like really take care of things, and that was hard. As as smart as I was about some things, that was hard. I don't know why, but it was really hard. So I did that. I you know taught high school, and in the midst of teaching high school, I was like, there is more. Like I love teaching high school. Can I clone myself and let the very happy version of me continue teaching high school students? in middle Georgia, in a very small town that was really committed to the arts and had art, theater, music, and dance in the school. Um, can I, can can part of me just keep doing this gig and another part of me go back to school and learn more because there's so much more I have to teach. And now that I've met all these young people, again, it's always these young people who are hungry and need to be connected with opportunities, I gotta go get more to bring back. Is what I've, I've just always felt like. I gotta go get more to bring back, and so you know, from from that came just this ping pong game of 
I would go to school for a bit and study some more and pick up another degree and go teach and enrich the teaching. And it just got bigger. It didn't really change. Like I would go teach theater, but the theater would be informed by dance and music and creative writing and, you know, all this stuff. Um, so I would go to school, go back and teach or make something and then go to school again and go back and teach or make something. Always trying to, I don't know, find connections, I guess. And that makes me, I just thought of another thing about my siblings. I have the best siblings. Like, I don't know how many people get to be friends with their siblings, but we're friends and we love each other and we like each other. And they're so great. They're so smart. They're smarter than I am. But here's the difference. (laughs) They'll kill me for this. But I came home from college one time and they were still in high school being cool. And I remember I was so on fire about what I was learning and getting connected to. And I remember being in the backyard and my two cool younger siblings were like, so what's it like? Tell us all about it. And I was just like, yeah, 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 just going on all about this. And I remember how they were looking at me. And and at some point, they had to tell me this story because I'd forgotten about it like most stories. Um, my brother told me this story. And, and at some point he says that, they were just looking at me, and I was like, I mean, don't you feel like like you have to do something? Like, you have to change the world. And I think one or both of them probably had a cigarette that they were sneaking in the backyard <laughs> and took a long drag and were like, no. Hmm. Actually, no. That is just you, and you have always been this kind of person. And then I felt like a freak, and they were like, you're not a freak. We know this about you, like this insatiable desire to like, we have to change the world all the time. And and they never judged me. And I, and I think that's really cool, even though that's not what they were. They made fun of me about it in mm-hmm. a loving way, but like, no, Tori, not everyone wants to do what you want to do. So again. But they were supportive, and I think that that's really an important part of the equation. Yes. Right, because I know that my parents love me, mm-hmm. and they didn't always understand the things I did, or they didn't always um, have experience with the things I was involved in, um, but they always supported me. Mm-hmm. They always, um, and I didn't realize how little money we had either growing up, um, because whenever I wanted to go to a camp, somehow I ended up at the camp. Yeah. Um, if there was an activity I wanted to be a part of, somehow we ended up being a part of that activity. Ah, same. I'm with you. And it's incredible. And it? now in hindsight, I realize how difficult that was. Yeah. And how challenging that was and how many other families share that same struggle to be involved in things. Yeah. And to enrich their children's lives. Yes. And um, and so that support is really important. And sometimes you don't get that from your parents. Right. Sometimes you don't get that from your family. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully there's somebody in your life that, that does support you and does encourage you and does help you along the path so that you can find those things and those avenues to change the world. Yeah. And I think we also, I could be wrong about this, 
um, because it's me, remember, hyper-responsible older sibling, world-changer type, yes. Um, but I feel pretty strongly that people who do find their way kind of have a responsibility to keep their eyes peeled for somebody who might need a nudge hmm. or who might need a hand. N- not everybody can adopt a, a child like you're going to be my um, protege. I'm going to help you achieve all your dreams. Like that's not, it's a nice story, but I don't know that it's very realistic, but a, an encouraging word, an adult who says, you know, if you want to do this, you could probably do this. That, that can change the, the path for a young person hmm. Um, or somebody who says, yeah, I'll give $25 toward your uh, trip to London mm. or whatever. Those little things, even little things can help. Like you just don't know how much of a difference you might be making in somebody else's life. But I think we have to watch for those. I don't know about other people, but sometimes I get into a little comfy place of like, I'm so glad my life is just great and I just feel like I just want to wallow in that and feel grateful and gratitude. And then I forget that I have to also pay it forward and pass it on. I just forget because I'm so happy. It's not because I'm like lazy and I don't want to help other people, but sometimes I get a little complacent about how much, how much work it took to, for others to help me get where I am. I was very easy to ignore. I mean, I think I was a nice kid, but like, any any number of people, hundreds of people could have just looked the other way or gone like, oh, it's probably going to be a sad story. Hmm. You know, the girl from the small area lost her father, handicapped sibling. Like there's so many things. It's like, oh, bless your heart. And they look away. Hmm. And I have to remind myself actively sometimes, even though it's easier to look away and not look out for helping other people even locate opportunities. Um, I think we have to do that for each other. And it's not even just kids. It's like friends of mine or, I don't know. I mean, just trying to connect, just trying always to connect and really see someone, um, helping to see someone where they are, helping if you can lend a hand or an encouraging word to, to, to say, I understand. I don't know. I don't know what your thing is, but like, I support you doing whatever you're doing. Is there anything I can do to help? Like, we got to do that for each other. Kids, grown-ups, people of all shapes and sizes. I think it's part of our human job. It sounds a little idealistic, I know, but like it just feels like something we're supposed to do for one another. Just be on the lookout or just be understanding. Hmm. Even we don't understand to try and be understanding. My husband says that a lot, and I totally believe it. Even when you don't understand, you can be understanding. That stretches a long way, I think. You ended up back in Troy. Yeah. Through a series of events. <laughs> series of un- maybe unfortunate events. <laughs> no. no. No, they were all positive. All positive. Everything. Um, I think, and this is just me from my perspective and what I've seen and how you've affected my life and my family's lives is that you are touching other people and you are changing people's lives and affecting people through the arts because you've always been aiming for something better. 
and and I really I think for myself as I reflect back having something to aim at is really important Mm -hmm. and when you don't have something to aim at it's easy to drop off fall off the fringes to um to lose your way to give up um and i think that you you can't save everybody you can't fix everybody you can't mentor everybody but just by virtue of you living your life and doing the things that have meaning for you you've brought meaning to other people hmm. and i think specifically about um the program Summer Spotlight mm-hmm. that you've been a part of for how long now? This is its 12th year. 12th year. And uh, um, my daughter, I'm trying to think how many years she's been doing it. I don't want to say she's done it seven or eight years, but she was tiny when she was in one of the younger <laughs> classes. And how many kids do you think have come through there? Hundreds? Definitely. Maybe thousands. Maybe thousands? Because if we have... 250 to 300 a year and we're in 12 years Mm -hmm. and some of them a lot of them are repeats but Mm. not all of them and it's made possible in large part because it's at the university Mm -hmm. and this community is is benefited by the university and by the leadership of the university and by the identifying of this as a need and I think about how that has how that vision for that program has trickled down into other things Mm -hmm. Um, grants that have been pursued for theater education classes for um, center stagers Mm -hmm. right um, the Johnson Center, yeah. At the Johnson Center? Mm-hmm. And how many kids that impacts? Mm-hmm. Um, what other things do I not know about that that are happening in our area through the arts that you've been a part of or that you know about? There are a lot of little undercurrent things always moving. Um, like this is a really culturally and artistically rich area. Um, there's a lot. It's just not all on the surface in a formally established way. There are so many talented people in this area, and they're doing good work of different types. And so there's a lot of work and a lot of involvement, so many that I can't even name or number them. But there is a, there is a rich and, and vibrant life of creative people doing their things for their community, mostly in the interest of connecting people or connecting us with our past or our story. You know, I'm thinking about music that happens in community and church. I'm thinking about um, the theater that happens in Brundage and how that involves generations of people. Um, I'm thinking about teachers like Lenny Trawick in Brundage that will pick up students and, and help them not only with learning an instrument but writing their own songs, like that there are people in our community quietly doing those things to perpetuate the art and culture that is built in sort of here, that's part of the soil and water that you don't, that you don't, it's not on display in a gallery anywhere, but it's happening. So there's a lot of that going on. I will say that. And I, I try to be really grateful for that when I see it happening. Um, in terms of formal things, 
um, one of the things that I think of are the are the outreach efforts that the department that I work with. I think this happens also in the Department of Art and Design and the Department of uh, excuse excuse me the School of Music. So I don't want to I don't want to deny what they're doing because I think they're doing a lot of little things like this. But things like the the Pied Piper's Children's Troupe they go around to schools every year, um, it, mostly in this part of the state, and perform for very young children like preschool through second or third grade and um, so that's very active uh, we've got we do like a day of dance where we open our doors for a Saturday and it's mostly middle school and high school but people that want to wander into the dance studio and take classes for a day and go see a show for free you know those kinds of things um, just presenting opportunities and opening the doors and saying come come look come look at what you might be interested in um, we do pr productions. I get to help produce plays and musicals and dance concerts, and I get to collaborate with the School of Music and Art and Design to put on events all year round. Like we do probably 35 to 40 events between all of us on campus and, and going out into the communities um, where we invite people to come in and, and see quality work. Um, here because they might not be able to make it to Birmingham to see the next thing that comes through on tour. So we sort of have an, a responsibility to put on excellent work and put excellent art in well-maintained galleries and um, put on great symphony band concerts and things like that. So those things are happening with the university and I agree with you. I think that the university has picked up the idea of it's part, part of its responsibility to promote and provide these opportunities not just for young people but um it's, it's not just service or a friendly thing it's like part of the fabric it's like what we're supposed to do when we connect with our community and I feel like I'm part of the community and have always been and now work at the university so I get to be on both sides of that and understand the value of both sides um so yeah I totally agree with you you give you give a lot you give a lot of yourself to others, your time, your energy. Mm -hmm. um, you give a lot to your family and your neighbors. How do you find time for yourself? That sort of takes work. Mm. There is, you know, I think we were talking earlier about your outside and your inside maybe not matching. Sometimes... Sometimes, I'll give an example, sometimes I may come across as antisocial or um, not disenfranchised, but a little avoidant, sometimes maybe a little mysterious. That is what it looks like when I'm taking time for myself. And I enjoy, I enjoy what I do every day. I'm so lucky. I love what I do every day and I feel very purposed in the work that I do. And I feel very purposed in that my work involves giving to other people. It brings me a lot of fulfillment. Um, and in order to not be embittered by how much I give away, I have to have take back time, which means that there are some things that ordinarily I might do, like there are organizations or groups or other communities that I might be a part of that I just don't. And that's the trade-off, you know, that, 
I do incredibly engaged work that takes a lot of energy and a lot of heart and a lot of focus and a lot of um, service, I guess, like, like you speak of giving. If, if I don't draw a line and just go home and enjoy my husband and son and, and, and my siblings and family of origin and make time for that, um, my tendency is to not do that. So it takes work to draw the line and go home so that I can feel very fresh and so that the giving is authentic every day. Like there's not a summer spotlight kid that I see in like Walmart or something that I don't feel so happy to see. It's never an act. And I think that is because <laughs> I have to unplug and go home um, and rest and reflect and let that all settle in. But I have to work at it. I have to work. I, and I'm not, I don't always do a good job. I, I overgive sometimes, which I don't think is uncommon with teachers and um, people who are in like caring professions and things. It's difficult not to let what is your work and your purpose define who you are. And so what I sometimes mistakenly call selfish, things like going into my music studio to write or record or play, because that's a part of my life that if I'm not careful, I will let other things crowd it out and I won't be trying to write songs and orchestrate them for others to share. Um, so I have to make time to do that. And I have a supportive household that understands and says, why don't you go out there and play some music? It's been a couple of days, you know. So I rely on people to help me take care of myself. That's another way that I do it. Um, I have picked back up reading in a way recently. That has been incredible. I just forgot how nourishing it is to just read voraciously and take in others' ideas and make sure I don't get too caught up in what I'm doing that I remember that there's a whole universe full of ideas that have nothing to do with what I'm doing and brilliant people, kind of like you with this podcast, it's like you inviting people in here to go, what are you about? That there's something really challenging and healthy about shining the flashlight hmm. on what somebody else is thinking or doing. And for me, that's been reading has been really important. So creative writing, journaling, songwriting, playing music alone, um, and with others when I can, those are ways that I kind of take back for myself. And even though it sounds like, you know, the old lady that I've always been in my soul, I love to be in the kitchen. I love to be in the kitchen. I love to cook. I especially love to make things for other people, mostly unhealthy things. <laughs> because great. those are the things that taste good. Right. Mm. I love those things. But I love to do that. I love to have people sit still and enjoy something good to eat and talk and relax. And that feeds me, no pun intended. But it feeds me to see people like enjoying one another. So to facilitate, like to be like, let's have, let's get all the, the kids over at the pool and yeah, it's going to be a mess and whatever, but like we'll get to sit around and be together to facilitate that. That heals me and feeds me and restores me and makes me want to go do, go do things. So all that is me time. And to be honest, I really struggle with feeling like a taker when I take time for myself, but I have to work at it. And I appreciate even you asking me that question makes me go, yep, it's a thing. I have to work on this. We have to. Yeah. There was a time when I first moved to Troy. I said yes to everything. Yeah. And 
because I wanted to be involved. I wanted to be a part of the community. I wanted to give a hundred my a hundred percent of myself. Um, because I wanted people to know that I cared. Mm -hmm. But because I said yes to everything, I stopped saying yes to myself. And 10 years later, and there's lots that goes into this, and you and I have talked about this before, so I won't go too deep into it, and maybe it's something I'll share in a podcast one day, but I realized that I had forgotten about parts of myself, like art, and music because I'd gotten so wrapped up in other people's things mm. that I forgot about my own things. And I didn't have a lot of mm, joy. I won't say I wasn't happy, but I just didn't have a lot of like internal joy. Like it wasn't, it wasn't coming from deep within me. Mm. I, I felt empty. I felt burned out. I felt disconnected from myself. And it was through recognizing how overloaded I was that I started to cut things out and I started to say no. And I started to add those things back in and I started saying yes to those little things that make me, me. And through even just little things like mm -hmm. sketching for a few minutes each day or a couple of days a week or picking up my guitar periodically, um, just those little moments for myself and reading, um, Listening to music. Listening That's a to thing music. That we talked I'd, about. Yeah, I'd, all those things that make you who you are, you can't neglect. Um, I mean, you can. You can, but you shouldn't because <laughs> because when you do, you lose a little bit of yourself and and you lose a little bit of your stability. I guess your 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 foundation, what makes you who you are. You start to get. Um, you start to lose it, and and when you when you lose the that dream that that dreamer that's inside of you, um, your days can get get hard. Thinking. Why do you maybe speak from your perspective, or just speak about you know what you see people doing? Why do you think we would ever do that? Like like, why would you ever not sketch? Why would you ever? not listen to an album just for the joy of listening to an album. Why do we do that, do you think? How does that happen, that you put aside the parts of you that are the most you? It's hard to say. I imagine everyone's different. I think for myself, I had certain goals, mm -hmm. right, that mm -hmm. I'd come to at that point in my life, things I was shooting for, things related to work, related to family, um, you know, you make you make a choice and then you move, move on to a different stage and you make another choice and you move on to a different stage. And and it's just easy to, to put it to the side. Um, so that's one reason, I think, to get distracted by the by the things that are in your life that have nothing to do with who you are as a person, your work, you know, whatever. Um, but I also think fear right? Like there's some things that maybe you like that are a little weird. Yeah. And you're afraid of what other people might think of that, of your weirdness if you let it out. Mm. And, or, uh, or it appears frivolous. Like or, I'm thinking yeah. about, you know, oh, you draw, mm -hmm. like that's a fun hobby. And it's like, mm, mm, no, that's it's a not a hobby for me. Right. That's part of who I am. And without it, it's like a piece of me is missing. 
Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think that some people stop doing the things they love because of they're afraid of what other people will think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you, if you have a dream or you have something that other people don't know about, it makes it much harder for you to let it out into the light of day. Mm-hmm. And then it makes it easy to neglect because it's hidden and nobody else sees it. And there's nobody, nobody there to say, Hey, uh, when's the last time you played your guitar? When's the last time you wrote a song just for fun? When's the last time that you, um, enjoyed an album when you just sat and listened to music right. and talked about it with your friends? Um, if people don't know that's a part of you, then they, they can't ask you about it. Yeah. They can't, you, they can't keep you accountable to yourself. Have you found since you've been trying Wait, how to, did this become your podcast? This is my podcast. It always was. <laughs> this is how it works, Adam. Um, have you found that since you have been able to reconnect um, with some things just, that are just about you for you and connect you back to your voice, unapologetically even, have you found that that has had an effect on other parts of your life, like the way that you relate to people or the way that you parent or the way that you, you know, do your day-to-day activities? I think it has, I think a couple of things that have happened is that I am more aware of myself more aware of my interests, more aware of things that make me happy. And I make time for those things. And when I make time for those things, then I'm a happier person. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a more centered person, more balanced. And, and it allows me to connect with other people who share those same things. So I get some community out of it with people that maybe I wouldn't have pursued or reached out to because we share that connection. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think most of all, uh, most of all, it, it, um, it gives me balance between work and self. Um, and it helps me to encourage other people to do the same thing. Maybe that's, maybe that's one of the things that I, that I'm most happy with is that I feel a desire to encourage other people and inspire other people to be their best person and to enjoy the things that they like. You know, what list three things that are unique to you that make you happy. Are you doing them? If not, why? Do you love reading? When's the last time you read a book? Six months ago? Why are you waiting? Go read a book. Make that a part of your life. It makes you happy. Do it. Find a way to fit it into your life. Um, I actually did that. That was an exercise that I did when I hit this wall. As I wrote down, I wrote a list of all the things I was involved in and all the things I was responsible for. And then I wrote another list of the things that I thought made me unique that I thought made me happy, that were a part of who I am. And I drew a line um, on like, I think it was like the top three or the top five. I drew a line under that. 
And I said, okay, I've got to balance out these two, these two columns. I got to shed all these things under this line so that I can fit these other things in. And it gave me balance. And it was super easy, right? It was the most difficult thing I've ever done. (laughs) No, telling people no is hard for me. Mm -hmm. I like to help. I'm a helper. People ask me for help. I'm happy to do it. Um, Unless it's manual labor. (laughs) You're not interested in helping them out. No, I'm joking. I, I will help people in any way that I can. I think you just saw in my face that I thought, hmm, there are several things that need doing around You, you got your honey-do list out. Right. Like, Ed, Adam's coming over to help us move the piano again. Oh, my goodness. I'm, yeah. So um, <laughs> Ed's ears just perked up. The, um, the hardest part sometimes is telling people no. You have to learn that saying no is okay. It doesn't make you a bad person, and it doesn't mean you don't care, and it doesn't mean you don't care about the other, the person who's asking you to do it, that you don't care about them, but you can't do everything. You can't fix everyone. You can't help everyone. Um, You can't do everything, so you have to choose, and and sometimes that's the hardest part. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that is the hardest part, is finding that thing that's that you're willing to sacrifice for um that's that important to you that you can tell other people no because you have to have it yeah if you don't have a reason then it's real hard to say no yeah that's true that um there's a i can't think of the word for it but this idea of I, one thing that has helped me a lot, I'll have to say, just on that on that topic, because I'm I have the same um, disease, the yes disease. But for the same reason, I want to help. I want to be helpful. Maybe I want to be perceived as helpful. I don't know. Mm. But like, I like feeling um, like I'm. I think of engine torque. Like I'm using all the power. I'm going at you know. I'm using all my capacity to do I'm using all of it like nothing's wasted you know you can sleep when you're dead you know that kind of thing like (laughs) use it all use it all spend it all Mm -hmm. I want to go to bed spent I want to I want to have done all I could do in a day and I made the mistake I think for a long time of being like I need to go to bed exhausted and like depleted and hungry or tired or hurt or even resentful oh hmm. that's awful it's, but you that happened that can slip right in there but with the best of intentions to want to do all things and be all things and help all the time it's like that's not for me that was not the smart way of being it's not sustainable no it's not sustainable for anybody there's a point where everyone will burn out mm-hmm. or and, hit a wall as or you hit mean, a wall yeah. like i did i mean and, and I think that is, um, you have to be willing to recognize that about yourself, that you have limits, that mm-hmm. you can't do everything, uh, and that there are other people that rely on you and depend on you, mm-hmm. and that you have to take care of yourself as well as others. And, um, you know, it's kind of like if, uh, if you're in the airplane, what do they say you're supposed to do when the masks drop if in the event of an of an emergency 
You put yours on first. You put yours on first Mm -hmm. because you can't help anybody if you're dead. Right. And so, um, so yeah, you have to. It's an important part of being your best person. And when you're talking about the things that that you're mentioning, the things that keep you the most connected to yourself or centered or grounded or however you want to think of it, enriched, fulfilled, nourished, everyone around you is better for that. You know, everything you touch is better for that. Um, Just by, by virtue of the fact that you are more of wonderful you, everybody who loves wonderful you is, is better off for getting to see a better version of you. Mm -hmm. And it feels like, not trying harder, but trying less hard, like like letting go is a phrase that you used earlier, of relaxing into who you are, the authenticity of who you really are, and and not in that, you know, well, I'm, I'm a do me, and if you don't like me, then, you know, you can just take a hike or whatever. Not that way, but um, choosing what you give your time and attention and energy to because it is precious and valuable and not infinite time and energy and um, people are not infinite. And so being smarter about those things and, and um, not thinking doomsday like, well, you can pick this or this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not, not that. That's not what I mean. But um, um, what, what did not work for me was thinking like... Um, well, you can either help the student or you can go home to your child. Those conundrums and questions did not work for me. It, it put me at, at, in a not fun crossroads. It's not that I'm picking a student over my son. It's not that. Both of those things are important parts of my life. And I was thinking a lot about if someone knew that you were helping a student instead of getting home 15 minutes earlier to be with your child, your child, your actual child who needs you. If someone saw that, they would have things to say. And it's like, who needs that pressure of someone else thinking that they know better about your internal workings and what keeps you grounded? Ellis Averett would say, my mom's helping a student. That's important to her. And then why would I care about what anybody else in the world thinks? Well, you should be home cooking for your son. Okay, well, my wonderful husband is doing that, and I've already told him I'm going to be 15 minutes late because I'm helping a student who doesn't have a parent nearby and who's having a really hard time. And I've told the student that I only have 15 minutes. So I'm, I'm taking care of business. So eliminating that voice in my head of what will others think, not in the they're all idiots, they don't know me, not disparaging what others would think ever, but thinking, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. I kind of have a plan, and the people I love and care about are aware of that, and I'm just trying to live into that. But thank you for your concern about where I should be. (laughs) And I, I, I take those questions, or let me back up. I try to take those questions not as challenges to me as a person, but as tests, mm-hmm. right? Like to my integrity in the sense that I'm willing to check what I'm doing. I'm willing to test what I'm doing to see if it's what I need to be doing. Mm-hmm. That's right. Great. Yeah. And, and so somebody who maybe doesn't have the best intentions 
says something disparaging or has a comment or says something, questions why I'm doing something or mm-hmm. hopefully that gives me an opportunity to reflect on what I'm doing, to check on what I'm doing, to see if it fits, to see if it's good, to see if it's worthy of my time. Because maybe, just maybe, that question, even though it may be misplaced, gets me to see that, oh, maybe maybe I'm not spending my time the right way. Um, and maybe it allows me to say, nope, I'm doing exactly what I need to be doing. Right. So are you saying in some sense that we should even be grateful for the people with good or not good intentions who, who not challenge, but question. I think so. What we're doing and why and what's important to us. I think questions are one of the most important things in life. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I think, I think we should question everything, question ourselves, question our attention, intentions, question why we're doing anything. Mm-hmm. Why am I doing this thing? Why am I doing art? Why am I doing music? I think we should evaluate everything's value to our life. Mm-hmm. Because just because something is available to you doesn't mean it's the thing you should be doing. Right. Or just because someone says you should be doing something doesn't mean it's what you should be doing. And and that's a tricky thing to navigate. And... um and but you won't know unless you ask the question. You'll keep doing the exact same thing indefinitely, either until you break, um, or until your life changes. But I think the question, the questions, we can be grateful for them. I think so. I that is why I'm in the arts. You know, it sounds a little highbrow and esoteric, but that art in whatever form, whether it's written or or visual art, theater, dance, music. I think if it's the real stuff, it's asking questions. Sometimes it's inciting an argument, you know, or Mm. provoking response or something like that. But I think the good stuff is somehow presenting something for us to consider. Mm. And the thing that I have loved about being in the arts and enjoying people who are in the arts or just creative. I mean, in the arts, it sounds pretentious if you try to label it too much. Like, are you an artist? Like it's a club. Right. Are you in the arts? I don't, I don't know if that's, I think that there is a place for that. I don't think that that's the kind of arts that I'm a part of. I'm Mm. a part of the forum for connection with Mm. ideas and people and for me, that comes in the form most often of story. Hmm. Um, but even things that are abstract and don't have a story that really makes me reflect on my life or the lives of uh, the lives of others, like uh, like visual art, still provokes me to pause. Um, even though that that's a medium of of artistic expression that I don't have a skill set for, I value it so much. Um, um, and people who have that skill set I respect so much because I don't have that level of um, being able to see. When you talked about cylinders and squares and lines and how you see those and, and they collect to form a thing, that does not come naturally to me. And I've not had an interest to walk toward it and pick up a pen and want to figure it out. I'm fascinated by it. But it's interesting that's not part of my makeup. 
but I look at a piece of work by a visual artist, whether it's realistic or abstract, and regardless of what its intent is, I'm appreciative that it makes me stop and go, now what's going on there? What was that artist thinking? Why is it that color? That sure is large. Why is it that big? Or that's only a shape. What? Why is it that simple? What am I supposed to get from that? Or what do I get from it? I'm supposed to, but what impact is it having on me? I feel that way about dance. I had to learn to watch dance. I love dancing. Like I find it very fulfilling. And um, for the times that I studied dance, I found it really nourishing on a lot of levels at once. Choreographing, I enjoy making with dancers' bodies, and I enjoy telling story. If it's like in a musical or something, I enjoy crafting narrative or just um, composing shapes on stage, like spatial art kind of. I enjoy that. But watching dance, like real, um, what, what I would call artistic dance, sometimes for me is like looking at a painting where I just need to sit still and let it wash over me. I can worry about what it means later if I want to, but, but again, it, just to your point about pausing, about um, as one of my favorite teachers and mentors ever said, uh, think about the things you think about. Why is this hitting me this way? Why did I not enjoy that? Um, why can't I get that thing out of my head? Um, why did the artist or the or the whoever make this choice? Um, what is or is not speaking to me or calling to a part of me? What's that connection about? Um, and I like being a part of that world. I don't like when it intimidates or scares people so mm. that they feel like they can't approach it. They can't approach it. I feel that way about, like, when I went, I've only been to the Modern Museum of Art um, once. And I was very, I was scared. I was a grown person with with three and a half college degrees. And I was like, I'm going to walk into this New York museum. And I'm scared. I don't think I am something enough to approach this great art. So I've studied the arts or been marinating in the arts my entire life, and I was scared to go in. And I had to really talk myself into it. Like, I don't know what I thought. Like, I was intimidated. I thought, I'm not smart enough to understand it. I'm not deep enough to uh, to get it or to be moved by it. And I think... How many people feel that way? They feel like they don't have license to approach art. I have people all the time. This is one of the things that that always startles me is when someone says, I can't draw. <laughs> and I know where that comes from. I understand it. But anyone can draw. I think the fear is that people think it won't look good mm-hmm. or someone will think it looks bad or... Um, any number of reasons why not to do it, but anyone can learn to draw. Um, it doesn't have to be a masterpiece. I um, was talking to a friend the other day about that, and he's older than me, and he is wanting to learn, he's wanted to learn how to draw for a long time. And I think that's great. I, I think that um, art and music and dance and theater is totally subjective. And that is one of the best things about it and is that you can, you can do it and you can do it badly. Yeah. 
And it's okay. Right. That, and that subjective thing can feel like a great big ocean. Like, wait, no one is here to approve or disapprove. How do I, what do I do with that? Mm-hmm. And, and that, I can see why people would be intimidated by that. Mm-hmm. It can be too much freedom yeah. too, right? Yeah. Like everything's okay. Well, I live in a world of rules and um, approval and disapproval. And mm-hmm. if everything is okay, just because you felt it, what does that mean? You or know? even, or even, where do I start? Right. Like it's so big, and and you walk into this big museum with all these masterpieces. Mm-hmm. Those masters can be intimidating, but every master started somewhere. Every master was a little kid who was drawing in the dirt, or had a crayon mm-hmm. or a pencil, and drew badly. And that's okay. Right. Um, yeah, so sometimes sometimes we need teachers who are gracious to us <laughs> and patient with us. Yeah. Who say there's no mistakes in art. Like my wife, she's great about that. Mm-hmm. And when she teaches little kids, that's one of the, her, her number one rules, maybe her only rule, um, is there's no mistakes in art. And... I think that is something that's empowering, especially especially to children. Yeah. With with the visual arts, um, with theater, with um, with things like this, they allow kids to express themselves. Um, I see the center stagers, these little kids, <laughs> learning to be confident, learning to try new things learning to do improv, um, being stretched and challenged and knowing that it's okay if they mess up, knowing it's okay if they're not perfect, learning to let go of those fears and those desires to be perfect. I think art, when used properly, is a very freeing, freeing experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Think about... I don't know. I th- you said something a second ago that like really put a light bulb, and then I got excited about thinking about those little the center <laughs> stagers standing up and saying their first spoken sentences alone in front of a crowd of a hundred people. Like that's a big deal, you yeah. know. And maybe they didn't do it perfectly. Right. Maybe they stumbled over their words. Maybe it wasn't as smooth as they wanted it to be, but they did it. They sure did. They got up there and they did it. Yep. I th- I think about. Um, I, I, I hear, I hear myself sometimes and I think there's an eye roll happening somewhere, you know, with somebody who's listening to me go on about the importance of the arts and self-expression and because I hear what it sounds like, mm-hmm. I, you know, and I take myself with a grain of salt too, because it, it starts to sound like everything is okay all the time and, mm. and whatever you bring is fine. And it's sort of like, okay, yeah, I know that, no, it's not, everything's fine. And, and. It's not that, but it's, you mentioned just a second ago about this need or this desire, this compulsion to do it right Hmm. or to, or to nail perfection or to impress others or to make people like you because you did a good job or things like that to be set free of those things. I don't know. I think, I think, 
I don't know what I could say I'm an expert in, but I spend an awful lot of time thinking about how people perceive arts, the arts, all of them, and how people engage in the arts, which is why I'm in arts education. And even that label feels a little too constricting sometimes. Constricting? Is that a word? Mm-hmm. Restrictive, constricting? Right. Both words. Pretty sure. I couldn't spell them, but I'm pretty sure they're words. Right. And they sound fancy, which is kind of the point. But thinking about the arts in education, they go hand in hand because it is um, giving people tools and opportunities, tools and opportunities. And then they get to express their own voices or explore their own inner or outer thoughts, things that interest them, the curiosity and the individuality that can come through that. But like a healthy dose of that sounds like a pretty good idea. And starting with young people sounds like okay, that's where you can affect change is if you teach people to expect from the beginning that they can try something and make a mistake and it probably won't be the end of the world, but better to have tried and failed than to have never tried at all, that whole idea. So like, okay, I'll teach five-year-olds that it's okay and I'll sustain them, I'll try, to being eight and to being 10 and then, oh goodness, through middle school, when trying and failing is just horribly awful, you know, to your friend group or whatever, and through high school and then into adulthood and college, and then the worst, you know, we're the worst, the adults are the worst, about not wanting to play and try and fail anymore because we're worried about how it will look or that it might not make us enough money or that we might not have the right friends or the right invitation to the right thing, whatever. So we just don't try. And and then we're walking around not really alive and and i think the arts are an antidote for that i don't, I don't think they're a cure all but they certainly disarm some of the fear of self expression disarm is a that that is the word i think that popped up when you were talking earlier i was thinking about that i feel a sense of calling or purpose. Calling always sounds like a mysterious voice that not everyone hears, so that sounds kind of exclusive. I don't want it to sound like that. But I definitely feel purpose like to, to disarm the stigma around what art is and what the arts are. And it's part of the reason I live here. It's part of the reason that I'm not in a city somewhere doing this and having a much easier time of it. Um, this is where people need to have it disarmed. As I mentioned before, walking into that famous museum, um, why was I afraid? I don't want anybody to feel afraid. Why did I have, there was a stigma on me and on what I was about to go do. And how could I feel unworthy or unprepared or uneducated or or not enough in some way in the face of great art how could that happen how when that art was made for people like me by people like me how did I get myself into that box I feel challenged and led as as a scholar as a teacher as a maker of creative things as a facilitator as an administrator sometimes as an advocate, um, even if it's just hanging out talking with a cool person, you know what I mean? Like the highbrow things and the non-highbrow things, I feel really, really purposed to 
demystify and disarm art for anybody that wants to take a look at it. And that begins with opportunity. There's that word again. It keeps coming up. It begins with access and opportunity. And it's hard. Hmm. It's hard here. Not not just in Troy, Alabama. What a great place. It stretches itself all the time to try to meet the needs of the people who are clamoring for things. I mean, I, so I'm, I'm really proud of where we are. I really am. Um, but it's hard. It's, it is pulling a stone uphill or pushing the boulder uphill. You know, it's hard. Um, and I think it would be easier and more immediate. There are already currents moving in other parts of the country, in other parts of the world, in other parts of this state. Um, and that's another thing that I want to continue to push. And it's a thing that I love about you and Christy and so many other people in this community in particular who it might be easier for them to do what they do somewhere else. And there might be more like-minded people who are doing creative work or artistic work or whatever. Um, that might be more readily available and people are actively choosing to be here because they believe it's an important part of community and connection. There's that word again too about how are we connecting to one another and there are a lot of creative and artistic people here who are beyond talented, who aren't stuffy or, or pretentious. Or, and I love that. I love that about this place. And I want to help people connect to that if that's, if that's what they want to find or if that's what they want to become, you know. So I don't know. I love that you have made it your life's goal to make the arts accessible to people. Um, I think that you have just a special way of, of inspiring people. And it's clearly a part of who you are, going back to those days laying in the grass of, um, of your family's home. And I like to imagine that there are children alive today that you've touched through the arts who are more confident, who are willing to try new things, to step out, um, to not be afraid, and that the arts have, have helped them to say yes to opportunities and to not be afraid of opportunities and miss out on something special. Um, the arts open doors for people. They open doors for me. They open doors for you. I'm here because of the arts in many ways. And so are you. And I hope that at least through this conversation, that maybe somebody who was afraid to try something new will maybe try something new. Somebody who's wanting, who's been wanting to learn how to paint or learn how to sew or learn a new skill says, you know what? I'm tired of waiting. I'm going to try it. And even if I do it badly, I'm going to do it. Because life is too short to not enjoy it. Agreed. And aren't there so many wonderful stories 
like, look at what you're doing with this podcast. You're engaging other people and talking about their stories, whatever. If, if That can be highly academic, um, or it can be just chatting, or you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you're engaging w- with stories about others. And if, if that is not what being alive is about... Hmm engaging and intertwining and, and um, learning about other people's stories and where they come from. And I think the arts capture that. They help us tell our stories and help us find our voices to tell our stories and then help us to consider the stories and voices of others to develop empathy, to develop love, as sentimental as that word has come to be, but love and care for others and the world around us. Um, it begins with pausing looking, listening, um, stepping out, saying a thing, sharing our story, finding our voices, like it just snowballs into something that I hope yields greater connection between humans. Hmm. We got to have it. I like it. This has meant a lot to me. Um, just you taking the time to sit down with me and talk for all this time. Um, I hope people get something really positive from it. And, uh, and I hope that you are, I hope that you have many exciting and fun and new adventures in the future, both here and abroad, and that you continue to spread the word, um, and the feelings, the positive feelings that come from the arts. You're a good ambassador, not only for your community, for your family, but, but also for art. And I, I hope you continue to have a platform for that. So thank you for being here to talk with me. Thank you. It's been an honor. I'm very flattered that you asked me and, um, I have immense respect and admiration for you as well. And I hope all of your podcast episodes are fabulous. (laughs) I will be listening. This one will be the most fabulous. Of course it will. (laughs) (laughs) well thank you all right thank you i think we're good okay thank you everyone for listening to this episode of the bean pot a couple of quick reminders to subscribe to the podcast and to visit patreon.com slash adam drinkwater to fill out those quick polls i hope you enjoyed this episode Be looking for the next one in two weeks. This show was produced, recorded, and edited by me. All music is by the very talented and gracious Lenny Trawick. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll come back.